Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have with me today a guest that, that uh, and she doesn't know this, I'm going to tell her right now on live TV, that I have fangirled uh, her for several years now. Um, I just uh, admire her uh, her courage and her strength and her uh, ability to uh, get a message across. She is a fellow Midwesterner. She's a fellow retired police sergeant. And Doran, welcome to the show. Thank you, Betsy. <laughs> so um, you started in law enforcement just a few years after I did. Um, and uh, so tell folks about your career a little bit. Um, I started in 1993. Uh, I was in retail security before that. And my then boyfriend, then became my husband, talked me into being a policeman. And I did. I joined the police academy, St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department's Police Academy. And uh, and on Valentine's Day of 1994, I graduated. And I mean... It's kind of history, but no, I, uh, I've i been on the street. I've been a juvenile detective. I was the first school resource officer in the city of St. Louis. I was a sex crimes detective. I got promoted and went back to the street. I was a founding member of our crime suppression unit as a sergeant. I was the first female sergeant in the crime suppression unit. I was the academy recruit coordinator for a while. So I had 400 recruits come through in two years. So from there, I went back on the street for a little while. And then I was... Um, I was a CIT coordinator for the crisis intervention. I oversaw all that training that came in through the city. And then I became the FTO coordinator. So you're wearing one hat, you know how agencies are. They put four different hats on you if you do your job right. So I was doing that. And then I've always been a, an advocate for mental health because I saw officers struggling throughout the years and I've been trying to push it. They finally got it. Um, but I, I became the homeless outreach coordinator and I was doing uh, CIT. So it was kind of a mix of both. And then I became the wellness coordinator at the end of my career. So, yeah, you had this long and storied career. You know, you broke a lot of barriers. Um, and uh, and you were also married to David Dorn, who retired as a captain. And uh, you guys were pretty set to just have a a uh continue your terrific life together um until june 2nd 2020 talk about that day um it wasn't supposed to happen um i was working on the first and i was i was working at headquarters and there had been peaceful protests all day and as soon as it started getting dark we were working 12-hour shifts and uh, the, the protesters went into a park and they started changing their clothes putting all black on and the good people that were, you know, legitimate protesters were heading home and more people were coming with black clothing on and backpacks and stuff. So I, I was getting off at eight o'clock. I told my boss, Hey, I'm going home because I don't want to be stuck in, we'd be locked in headquarters if they got it there. So I went home and Dave was home and we laughed and joked about some stuff. Uh, I told him, Hey, I got to be back in the morning. So he went in the basement, his little man cave and was watching TV. The last I knew that's where he was. Cause I was going to go to bed. Uh, and Around 11, 30, 12 o'clock, I got a phone call that four officers had been shot. So I got that phone call and I, I made arrangements for someone to meet them. And then I was going to meet them in the morning because they were being treated and sent home. And then we were set up a time at like eight or nine in the morning to do their trauma counseling after being shot, their post-trauma. I ran downstairs and told Dave, he was in the basement. I told him, hey, you know, four officers were shot. I'm going probably in earlier than I thought. 
but I just want to let you know it's it's getting bad down there. And he's like, okay. And he was watching, as far as I know, he was watching movies in the basement. I went back to bed at four o'clock in the morning, the doorbell's ringing and I'm yelling for Dave to answer the door. There's no response. So I get up and answer the door uh, and the chief of police and two other officers are standing with him. And the first thing I asked was, where's Dave? And I didn't put it together. Our basement door was closed and we see he's in the basement, it's never closed and our alarm was on, which it's just not right. And um, so I was, the chief just said, hey, I said, where's Dave? And he goes, Annie's gone. And I go, what do you mean? And he's like, Annie, he's, he's dead. And uh, they walked me back in the house. And, you know, from there, I, I just, everything was a blur after that for probably a day and a half, two days before I really realized what, what was going on. So your husband uh, was killed, helped murdered, trying to just help out a friend, right? Yeah, we, we figured from the investigation, and, and I could talk about it now because the guy's been convicted, but um, around two o'clock in the morning, he got a call for the alarm. And, and him and the owner of Lee's Pond and Jewelry are very good friends. We lived 10 minutes away, so Dave was a key holder. And anybody that's in law enforcement knows, hey, when there's a burglary or something like that, they have a key holder respond, and they're responsible for the building. Well, that night, um, the mayor had done a stand, after the officers were shot or just before the officers were shot at 11, she had a stand-down order that they weren't responding unless someone was actually shot or there was an assault in progress. So when the alarm company, the protocol is, if it's just an outsider alarm, they would call Dave before they called the police. And that just means something set the alarm off on the outside of the building. Nobody had breached the building yet. But anytime the building had been breached, they're supposed to call the police first and then Dave. And they did. They called the police. They told them what was going on. And they said, you know, uh, David Dorn will be responding as the key holder. They didn't tell the alarm company that they were holding calls and not dispatching on. So the protocol is that Dave, when he got the call, was he'll meet the police there. He didn't know the police weren't responding from what we understand. Uh, that's the only thing I can imagine because he wouldn't go by himself and he probably, and he didn't wake me up for whatever reason. He always woke me up to say, Hey, I'm going. And he, and he just didn't that night. Uh, and uh, when he got there, there was no police and he got confronted by it. He confronted the protesters and they came right back at him and he was talking to several. And then just uh, the third guy, the man who killed him, Steven just walked past him and cussed him out and then dropped to a knee and fired at him unexpectedly. This was in the middle of the George Floyd riots of, you know, in June of 2020. Um, the summer of love. The summer of love. Your husband is a black man and yes. retired police officer. And uh, and his uh, murder made national news. And you got thrust into that national spotlight. Talk about that. Yeah, Um David was so beloved in our community, but you know, it's, it's the summer of love and these are supposedly peaceful riots. And he, a black man is killed by a black lives matter, black lives matter, um, protester. So a black man killed another black man while they're supposed to be fighting for justice for black men. And I think that in itself, because it didn't fit the, it did fit the narrative, but it didn't fit the narrative. Um, you know, it was always white policemen killing black men is why BLM was, 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 brought about but now you have a black man killing a black man who's a retired police chief or police captain both it just it, it hit everybody so hard that this you know he's retired he's done his career he's an older man he was helping his friend and 
here, this man just killed him in cold blood. There was no reason for it. And then I just, everybody started calling. Um, national news, international news. It made international uh, news as well. And then, of course, um, you know, I, it just didn't stop from there. And I was going to carry that message on that, hey, Black lives really don't matter when it comes to BLM because they just killed a Black man. And that was what was so brave because the rest of the world knows what cops already knew about organizations like Black Lives Matter, that they are Marxist, that they are anti-family, that they really are not there to help the lives of African-Americans, that they are there um, for mayhem and profit and Marxism and, and you know everything we continue to talk about. Um, but that was before that narrative was was really out there and the facts were really out. And so you made an incredibly brave decision uh, in August of 2020 to speak at the Republican National Convention um, about your husband and about, uh, frankly, the truth about what Black Lives Matter and Antifa really were. How, how did you come to that decision? Um, I know I wanted to get a message out and they were the only ones that called me and gave me the opportunity. Um, if anybody else would have called me, I'd have spoke for them as well. I'd have spoke the same words at, at anywhere else that it asked me. Uh, it was a platform to get it out there and I had to keep it going and I had to get Dave's name out there. And, you know, Dave was totally against BLM, being a black man. He saw what they were not doing in the communities. And he said, if it really mattered, they'd be there when the children were killed or, you know, when mothers were killed and they weren't. And so I had to carry that on in his name and the RNC gave me the platform and I took it. But you didn't stop there. And, and, and that is what is so admirable about you. You decided to take all of that knowledge, all that energy and uh, put it into something more. Tell everybody about that. Um, well, you know, I, I got I, I did a radio show for a little while and then I started uh, the Captain David Dorn Foundation and uh, we buy equipment for underfunded agents, not even the agency, we buy it for underfunded officers and first responders, those that get paid way less than the national average and they would have to take food off their tables to buy their own equipment because officers will get a gun and a badge, but you know, when a flashlight is $100, a good quality flashlight's 80 to $100 and pants you know, good quality pants are 50 to $80. A shirt is $80. A coat is 250. Everybody knows, you know, policemen, your holster could be upwards of $200. The, the belts and everything, everybody knows the cost of that. And if I can save these guys some money and they can keep the money in their household and with their family, that's, that's my mission now. Cause Dave was always a caretaker of his officers. If they needed something, he got it. And there was something like that in the city with the St. Louis police foundation, but it was focusing on just the city and the St. Louis County. And there were so many rural areas in Missouri and just across the country that just don't have it. So as I'm building, I will expand. But right now it's just mainly in Missouri because of it's me. I run it. <laughs> and uh, it takes a lot more people, a lot more money to get to get it going. Now, after Dave retired from uh, the Sailors Metro Police Department, he became a small town chief, right? Yes, he did. Moline Acres was a very small town. He had about he went from having. 250 officers in his command to having 15. <laughs> so I want people to know, I don't think a lot of people understand this, that that nationally, 
most police departments are less than 20 officers. In fact, most are less than 10 officers. You know, we always think of Chicago and St. Louis and New York and LA and these yeah. huge departments, uh, but most police departments are very small and most police officers in these small agencies have to supply a lot of their equipment, exactly what you were talking about, including their uniform, their body armor, that's huge. Um, is that why you decided to focus on, you know, equipment and uniforms and things for, for cops who can't afford them? Yeah, we, we saw a need for it. I wanted to give back and, you know, started off as scholarships, but I realized I can do much more than scholarships. And I think just keeping money in their household, because I just got an opportunity where we'll probably be offering training through, um, through an institute. They've just given me, um, and I've seen amount of training. If we put it in a dollar amount, it would be upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars in free training for officers in our local area. So um, I'm very blessed to have that. We haven't made an official announcement on that yet, but it'll be coming soon. <laughs> I guess so, I just made the announcement. <laughs> so you were very involved in training as a uh, as a police sergeant. You know, you were you worked at and as a police officer, you worked at the academy. You were field training officer. Um, coordinator. So I know training is, is near and dear to your heart. And one of the things that we continue to hear, um, you know, really since uh, Michael Brown tried to kill a cop in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 was, oh, officers need to be, they need to be better educated. They need better training. And yet so many police departments, including your own St. Louis Metro, they were defunded, significantly defunded. And one of the first things to go uh, the first two things to go, community policing and training, correct? Yeah. So training is um, training's really important, but you know, that's one of our budget cuts. Training goes first and then um, manpower. A lot of times salaries, they don't pay overtime, things like that. But in order to get people trained, you have to have bodies there. And if you don't have enough bodies to cover the street, you can't send them to training. So it's a catch 22 when you get into it. What kind of reaction did you get from um, your fellow cops, family members, when you decided to to go national to get that belief that you and David shared about Black Lives Matter? How did people react? Well, it was 50-50. There's some that have their own beliefs. Um, the kids, half the kids supported me, half didn't. My family, you know, were like, hey, whatever you're going to do, we support you. Um, a lot of the law enforcement quietly supported me because if they got their views out there, it wouldn't be well. But yeah, I mean, I, I did get a lot of um, a lot of people just walking up and thanking me. It really was. It was a silent majority that when they could, they thanked me. But I think I said things that a lot of Americans were thinking and just maybe were afraid. And people are afraid to speak up because... You know, if you say something against what other people think, now you get attacked for it. And um, I just, I had to get the message out. I'm like, I'm a police officer, you know, hey, come on, let's go. <laughs> How do you think David looks at what you're doing right now? What do you think he thinks? What do you think he would say to you if he could see all this incredible work you're doing? He would first be humbled by everything. Um, cause he was a very humble man. Uh, he'd laugh at me <laughs> cause he always, you know, told me I was stubborn and a little on the crazy side, but, um, 
I think he's smiling down because I'm carrying on his mission of taking care of officers. And that was always, as he came up, he brought people up behind him. Uh, if you were a worker, he helped you. And if you needed something, he made sure you had it. And that's really what the mission is that we're working on with the foundation. One of the things that we see now that is such a, a, a difficulty now in, in 2024, and it has been, you know, really since you and I have been police officers is police officer mental health. And and that's something when you and I were new cops, they didn't really talk about that. I, they certainly didn't talk about it in my Academy. I don't know if they did in yours in the nineties. Um, but we now know that police officer mental health is a huge issue. You were involved, you know, as a, uh, you know, first of all, with uh, CIT, you were involved with community mental health, but then you eventually got involved in police officer mental health. And you have that passion today as well. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, you can't have a healthy police department if their mental health isn't addressed. And if they are suffering and if they're in, if they're in PTSD or they're in the fight or flight mode, they're going to react before they think. And that creates more trauma. It creates uh, resistance. It creates problems within the work, you know, them just communicating with their fellow officers and sergeants. So that's the first step. Um, second step is, hey, we're taking care of all the citizens out there and their mental health. What about us? Who's going to take care of us? So that's what my commitment came to is, is helping officers and when I left the agency, I really felt like I left my officers when I retired. I really felt bad about leaving them. But after Dave's death, I just couldn't return back to police work. There was just something in me. I knew I couldn't be a police officer anymore. Um, but I still try to help them. So they all know, hey, if anything's going on, you can reach me and I will put you in contact with whatever you need, whatever services you need. I still have, I still have all my contacts. So I will, um, I'll facilitate whatever I have to to help an officer get the help they need, but they got it. They have to reach out to me or unless I know something's going on and then I'll track them down and they know I'm like mom. So I'll stay on them. You know, they just can't say I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Cause I'm going to get on them like a mom. And uh, I think, I think people don't realize how important it is. You know, we've lost so many officers to suicide and there's, it's very unnecessary when there is help out there and we can get them help, but we have to take the the stigma out of it and we have to take the black light off of it because officers are being put in positions where if I say something, I'm going to lose my job. Or if I say something, I'm going to be pulled out of my specialized unit or I'm going to be blackballed because of it. And we either need legislation or agencies really have to take on a policy that's not going to happen. So these officers can get their help. You know, and as you look at your police department, you look at, at your, the community around you, you look at this country, um, most police departments are incredibly shorthanded and police officers, especially in certain areas and, and the St. Louis metro area is one of them, are just really tired. They're demoralized. They're under attack by politicians and other quote unquote leadership. Where do we go from here, in your opinion? Well, they have to stop defunding the police. A lot of the citizens do support the police out there. They really have a passion and want the police in their communities. I know I can speak for some agencies. They're 30% short and people don't think that's a lot. But in the city of St. Louis, when you used to have 12 to 15 officers patrolling in one area, you're down to two or three officers patrolling now. When you call, you're not going to get somebody. And that makes a huge impact, not only on 
officer safety, but the citizen safety. Yeah, there's cameras up. Everybody's gone AI and they have all these cameras all over the communities, but it's going to record it, but who's going to stop it? And if you don't have the officers to stop the crime, then it's going to continue to happen. Yeah, I know I'm on camera, but so what? These these guys look right in the cameras. They don't care because also the prosecutors don't follow through and the judges don't follow through. So they get right out of jail. It's just a vicious cycle. And that just pushes the morale down for officers. And we really have to look at all of those things, funding them, making the prosecu prosecutors do their job, making the courts do their job. The officers are locking people up. But until we, we face those other issues as well, it's not going to fix the problem. And that is so well said. Where can people go to find out more about you, about uh, your husband, Captain David Dorn, uh, the foundation, and uh, where can they follow you on social media? Well, um, on for the for the foundation, it's www.dornfoundation.com. And I'm on social media, Ann Dorn or Ann Wood Dorn. I have both of them. And Instagram, I think, is, uh, oh, I'm not even sure. Mama D, maybe, is what my grandkids call me, is what it was set up as. But you search my name, Ann Dorn, and my picture will be there. You'll find me. And yeah, we're we're pushing on and anything we can do to help, we're, we're out there to help. And we so appreciate all you're doing for this profession, uh, all you're doing for your husband's legacy. And we thank you so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about us, visit the National Police Association at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.